Well, thank you, Mike, so much for connecting with me. You are in what part of the world? I am in jolly old London right now. Rainy London, I think. <laughs> and I'm in sunny California, and uh, I'm so happy to have Mike Presswood-Smith, re-recording mixer on the recently released Rocket Man. Thank you so much for uh, chatting. I, I think before we started recording, I, I asked you what when, the last time we chatted, and it was in 2014 for Into the Woods. So I imagine you've you've been busy since then. You've you've been, worked on a few projects. Yeah, I, yeah, I sure have. Um, yeah, I was. I think when I was working on that show, I was living in the U.S. I made the transition back to London again, uh, so I'm living here now. Although toing and froing, you know, as needs be. Uh, but so yeah, but a lot, a lot seems to happen in a few years. You know, they, they <laughs> yeah, the shows sort of connect together into a bit of a blur. But yeah, lots, lots, lots of work, lots of uh, fun. So for folks who aren't familiar with Rocket Man or Elton John, I mean the the tagline that they have here is a musical fantasy about the fantastical human story of Elton John's breakthrough years. When you first found out about the project, what was what did they say? What what, what was the kind of the pitch to you? What was those um, your first impression of this project? Yeah, well, I, I got I got on the project really via uh, Matthew Vaughan, who directed the Kingsman movies and produced Rocket Man, and uh, so they were discussing this uh, film as we were putting the final pieces together on the last Kingsman movie. So there was a lot of background chat on the stage as we were putting that together of this uh, and they were doing a deal with Taron. And so there was a lot of discussion about about it and occasionally we sort of got involved with it. So I got a, I got a, I got a picture of what it was going to be and it, I, I realised it wasn't going to be a straight up sort of biopic, that it really was mm-hmm. going to be a fantasy uh, rather than uh, you know, a straight up movie. And um, just from the description of the sets and what they were doing and what they're planning, how they're planning to do it, it became pretty clear it was going to be something a bit different. So uh, it was uh, fun to be around at that early stage, that sort of conceptual stage, and also also being able to discuss, you know, the process early on with those guys about how to do it uh, and, you know, how to how to kind of put these big musical numbers together, just being a part of that was really great. And, um, you know, I think m- my input and, and many others, you know, early on helped shape it, you know, in terms of uh, the, the way they went forward to making it, you know, with all the live vocals and the pre-records and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was good to be on early. That's great. And, and your director, Dexter Fletcher, he just came off of being, I guess, a producer on Bohemian Rhapsody. Is that right? He was, you know, well, he, he came on to do, Direct after Brian Singer left. Um, Correct. Yeah, he came on to direct the last few weeks of production with them, and then all the way through post. Um, he was at one point attached to direct that, I, I believe. So he had been around that project for quite a while. So, uh, so I think he was intimately, um, you know, uh, knowledgeable of of all the things that 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 that, that film needed. So he was the he was a he was an easy call. Um, but uh, I think he really you know put a great movie together but i think for, for for us it was great that he had a a trial run if you like i can just imagine that because that was the most recent you know music biopics film that there's always comparisons so what were some of the delineations between what you guys were going to do and what what was not the, like the creative direction for this film i guess there were two fundamental differences with that movie um one is that you know we are a fantasy we have a lot of 
sort of surreal uh, events uh, taking place and uh, in Rocket Man, and um, you know it's all seen through the eyes of a unreliable narrator, which is Elton in his uh, rehab room. So we had a license. Uh, the, the film has a license to completely bend the facts and chronology and all that stuff. Um, so I think that makes it very different from from Bohemian Rhapsody. But also, I think probably the biggest difference, and certainly in terms of my work was um that taron edgerton was 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 all always going to be singing his own vocals and um so all 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 the music uh, had to be done with that in mind all the live takes of anything sung had to be done with that in mind and uh, and and obviously it it really did steer us very clearly in 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 a direction uh, sound wise all the way through the movie it's like it's the central component of all the sound really is his performance and his vocal. So, and I, and Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, did it differently. You know, there was, there was more uh, lip sync stuff going on. And so, so obviously those things have a, bear a big, you know, uh, they, 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 they really do affect the way you approach this stuff. So, um, they're very different movies in that respect yeah definitely and something just i always like to look at is obviously like when the soundtrack comes out you know there's it's listing about 22 songs uh that that are featured Mm. did it always start i mean that that's an an insane amount of material already was it was it more ever was it less like how did it change yeah yeah there were several songs cut out uh uh, I would love to give you the names of them. I haven't gotten on the tip of my tongue right now, but I do believe that a couple of songs were removed. I know there was more. Uh, and also some of the songs that are there now were significantly longer. I know The Bitch Is Back, which is a, one of the, is the first track, I think, the first big track, was significantly shortened, um, you know, quite late in the day in order to get the story. I think they realised they wanted to get the story going and... Jumping straight into a big choreographed number was was great, but actually, from an audience perspective, you know, it was a little too much too soon. So they they cut that down, rightly so, I think. So uh, a lot of a lot of the songs were cut, and and in fact, some of them then opened up a little bit as well. They were very flexible. You know, it it did change quite a bit as we went through it. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. I, I imagine that from a music supervisor standpoint and being part of that conversation when it comes to placement and editorial and mixing, did they have pre-records of these performances when they went into production? Is that what they had a majority of this already completed before they even got to you then? Well, it's complex. They 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 did all the pre-records. So all the big numbers that, were, that Taron was going to work with, whether he was going to sing live or not, there were pre-recorded vocals done and the fundamental basics of the track were there as well. So that he had in-ear playback for all of the stuff. Um, and where there were times when he wanted to kind of riff it a bit more and so they took the playback out and uh, Andy Patterson, our, one of our music editors, played, uh, accompanied him live on piano so he could sort of freestyle more easily. Uh, and then Giles Martin, our uh, music producer and arranger, did an amazing job uh, uh, of then taking the pre-records and augmenting them, expanding them, contracting them, keeping the whole, all the components, you know, uh, separate so that we could mix them um, uh, throughout the entire edit, you know. Uh, and like you say, it's a Herculean task just logistically maintaining that, let alone really realising, oh, you know, there's a whole verse that we didn't do. We better go and record that, you know. So, 
uh, and actually often and Taryn would come in and go, oh, I think I can do that line a bit better. The whole thing was incredibly fluid, um, uh, which was which was great because I think it what it allowed us to to remain as open for as long as possible and really get the best we possibly could at any point. As you build these things up, often it takes a while for you to realize or for everyone, the filmmakers to realize what it is they've got. And and at that point, you might want to make a big change because suddenly getting to that point has informed you that something could be shorter or tighter or longer or so so having that flexibility meant that we could really you know get get the best out of the movie i think but obviously um you know was a big task for everyone just logistically to kind of keep a handle on it all um but you know that's what we do i was going to say there's a special type of director a special type of editor i mean everyone in within the production team like you you very gracefully kind of make it feel less like it's a hard stop. And I think that was something that I really appreciated about this film is that the transitions would slowly kind of feed in um, mm. the music lyrically. It, it felt like it, it was, a, you know, it was just dialogue, but then obviously it went right into lyrics of songs. Yeah, you know, it's a sleight of hand that it really is. And and that sleight of hand doesn't just come from what I do. It, it, it starts off in the script, you know, getting 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 someone to sing to you and an audience to go, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. It's quite a task because, you know, we don't do that in real life. And uh, so if someone does it on a screen, unless it's done in, in, in a way where you're almost not aware that it's happening, you kind of go, what, why am I being sung to? Or at least I do. And, um, <clears throat> and I think um, that sleight of hand has to play all the way through the script. You know, I think you have to almost build up to it, uh, you know, narratively, um, so that once you do start singing, it feels like a natural uh, crescendo, if you like, from the dialogue. It feels like a moment where it's the the shift is 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 not expected, but it's not unexpected. You know, at the same time, you don't want a needle drop kind of you know moment. You know, here it is. Uh, so, you know, those transitions they're always they're always the difficult bit, and um, we handled them in a couple of ways. Technically, um, sometimes we would use some of Taron's live vocals uh, to get us in. Uh, and then other times we'd have to just sit there with a, a chisel and a hammer and <laughs> just basically get the sound to all feel like it was actually happening at that time. And, you know, it, it's hard to convey that to people, but it's 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 a lot of chipping away at the sounds, not just the vocal, but the music and all critically, all the stuff that sits around that, all the foley and the backgrounds and all those things have to have to sort of sell the fantasy they have to sort of lie they have to you have to find a level where you believe what's happening on the screen but it doesn't become so literal that you don't just get taken away with the music as well and that balancing point is a really uh, you know it's a complex thing and it and it's very variable depending on which what the tracks are and, and what you're you know what the components are so something too is that obviously you have like this incredible resource of all these songs that the, the film kind of is built around. But then you also have your score from Matthew uh, Morganson, your, your composer. So what was the delicate dance of incorporating his material and the other songs? Yeah, I mean, actually, there were they're kind of there were kind of three layers because there's Matthew's score. There was the big set pieces, you know, uh, sung to camera. Um, but there was also a layer of source music, which was all Elton's tracks, but with Taron singing those as well. And so they'd play as sort of interstitial music, sort of montage kind of music, often, you know, segueing between scenes and things. 
Um, so there were like almost three layers, if you like, of, of quite distinct music. Um, the wonderful thing about Matthew's score was that it really took some of the some of the wonderful melodies from Elton's music and just bent them in such a brilliant way, in such a such a clever way, um, and 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 narratively did a beautiful job of tying together the each of the pieces of the, particularly the big set pieces, where so that. You're never out of touch with the with the melodies. They're always just there somewhere, bubbling along. Whether whether it was in a big set piece or a source cue or a score, it was always. I mean, obviously, there's moments when we don't have music, but it, it just supported in all the right ways. I, I think it was such a brilliant job that he did, and um, yeah, it was a pleasure to work with him. That's great. Uh, one of the big set pieces to open up. Or- you know, it's probably the third song in the film is Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. And it's this wonderful, they take the opportunity, Elton goes through the fence as a kid and comes out the other side as a late teenager, maybe, in his, what, 20s-ish? Yeah, I can say 20. Yeah. yeah. So the, um, that whole track in of itself, it's really high energy. It's fun. It starts with him playing uh, probably like in, in the pub on piano as a kid is that right and then it transitions outside yeah. so walk me through like yeah. like um just visually it's stunning the camera is constantly moving it never stops and so you and there's and there's people dancing it's like all the all the brakes mm. are off basically and this is kind of his, like kind of elton coming into his age and kind of this redemption so what what can you say just about how this how this song came about yeah well it you know, first of all, that 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 whole song is conceived as a single shot. It may not be something you're aware of when you're watching it, but the camera works its way around the pub. It comes outside, down the street, through a fun fair, through a street brawl, back down the street, and back into the pub again as a single shot. Uh, so it was very stylized in that sense. Um, but it had to be because you know we were we were transitioning from young Elton to to Taron's Elton uh, and using this wonderful redemptive song, you know, uh, to, to do that. So it's a brilliant narrative device because it, it sort of it allowed you to, as, as soon as as soon as we were into the fantasy, it allowed us to get away with changing, you know, our principal character right in front of your eyes and for you to go, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'll go along with that, which is a hell of a feat. Um, and, and, you know, hats off to the filmmakers for, for having the audacity to do it but it worked brilliantly and in terms of musically you know um it was very formative for us to um uh, work to get a balance on that because it really helped inform some of the other bigger set pieces later on in the, in the movie um and 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 what i mean by that is you know we wanted this to be a big showpiece uh, a big sort of event um spectacle uh, but at the same time, we really wanted to believe the fantasy. We wanted to believe that what we were seeing on the screen was, in fact, happening. And so what we had to come up with was a a layer of reality, if you like, uh, for the events to to sort of feel uh, to feel like they were real, but but also allow enough space for the music to really drive it and and play as a sort of um, a big set piece. So finding those finding those. Um, those layers of reality, you know, with the crowd and the foley and uh, uh, all that sort of stuff was, it was a very formative um, title for that. And I think we went, we went back and forward with it a lot. Uh, and, and it's, uh, it's quite a big loud number. So there's only so many, time, so many times you can really listen to it objectively before you, you lose objectivity. So 
we'd often put a pin in it and say, well, let's come back a bit later and see how it feels, you know. And, and so it was one of those pieces that sort of evolved probably every couple of weeks, really, if I'm honest. I, I couldn't tell you how long exactly. But suddenly, you know, often when you listen to things with fresh ears, you go, oh, you know what we need? We need a shout from those guys over there. We need to feel his foley just at that point as he jumps, but we don't need to feel any of his foley later, you know. So you find all the connective pieces that you need slowly. And then, and then you know, it, it, it sort of became a thing, became a bit of a reference point for us to say, well, how did we do it in that? Let's have a look. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you kind of sieve your way. It's like, it's like mining for gold. <laughs> you just, you sieve your way until you've got what you really need in your pan, you know? <laughs> That's incredible. The, the thing I really enjoyed too is um, I, I heard the film in, in Atmos and with that, there's incredible um, low end energy, just really fun just sonically just in the tracks there's a lot of great low-end energy and also a lot of um uh wonderful panning and kind of spreading out of the music so what was kind of your guys's yeah discussion about how to treat the music and and also like what happens when you start thinking about the dynamics of these tracks how like what's the bandwidth of of the music that you're you're working with you know it's it's two there's two things to to think about here one is these are songs you know they're, they're sort of well-established songs that everyone understands so the components of them have to be recognizable they have to be uh things that we are familiar with but obviously we have a whole new uh, orchestration and jars did an incredible job of, of basically grounding it in sort of a band-like structure with guitars bass drums those things but at the same time putting this brilliant layer of um a film cinema joy on it, you know, with like strings and uh, synths and all sorts of crazy. I mean, there's a bit when he when he goes underwater in Rocket Man where he, I think Charles has put in some scrapey sort of strings and uh, uh, like someone you know putting a coin down a piano string to make us feel like we're going underwater. Low, I mean, he, it was really inventive. And so so the so as it came to me, it was incredibly wide. Um, uh, but really nicely balanced already. Um, those guys did a great job. But really, uh, you know, I I had a lot of fun t- taking some of the stems and making objects out of them and finding more width and more space in the room so that the the principal band were on screen, but all the other bits, the, the sort of fun bits that gave it a sort of filmic quality were around us much more and much more uh, immersive in that sense. And it also gave us... Uh, a bit more space on the screen to to sell this layer of, re- of reality to, to kind of tie in events, you know, to make it um, to feel real. So finding that width was, you know, a double bonus because it gave us a lovely sort of space, but at the same time, you know, room for uh, for reality as well. So it was a, and each song is very different. You know, they're all they're all very different tracks. So you know, finding which bits worked, which bits didn't, it was a lot of trial and error. But um, you know, a lot of fun too. Yeah, really. How wide were you, were the the sessions? Like, how many tracks were coming into your to the desk for music? Even well, you know, we we had um, you know what? I wish I'd written this down before I got on the call. But <laughs> we, right. we we probably had, I'm going to say, something like twelve or thirteen stems of score, seven one five one score. Mm-hmm. So whatever the math is on that. Uh, then we had. A, probably two a and b sets of of big songs so uh and they were super wide i mean they're probably 100 tracks wide each those right. things and, and then we had the source music which again was all split so i could get into elements of that if we wanted to pull out 
vocal so the dialogue read better or if we wanted to just lower elements in it so it was hugely wide um so seal turnsack our um music editor on the stage did an amazing job of, of wrangling all that we i mean we 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 pushed the hdx3 to the point where it was <laughs> uh, the pro tools which the point where it really just you know just almost crumbled but um you know it those things it, you can talk about size and everything but actually ultimately any moment you're only really dealing with you know one set at a time you know and it's like all these things you you have to build it up in blocks you have to kind of go well let's deal with the the main band so guitar bass drums you know vocals let's do all that and then let's start thinking about the other how we're going to split everything else out and and then once we've done that let's look at the dialogue and then you know so you you literally go through piece by piece uh very systematically you know just finding the width for the difficult part is sort of sub- thinking subtractively as you're putting it together, thinking, well, I, ne- I know I'm going to need room for this, so I'm going to have to think about that now uh, and create a bit more space than I might ordinarily to knowing that that's where we're going. So uh, in a way, part of the craft is, I think, knowing what you want it to sound like at the end and putting the pieces together with that in mind so that when they all come together, it equals that. Um, does that make any sense? I I, it, it sounds uh, very ar- an articulate way of it's like controlled chaos to me. I mean, it's yeah. I suppose <laughs> it is. I suppose it is. Yeah. But that, I, I mean, think that, you have to have a good yeah. imagination of what you want it to be, so that when you're putting the bits down, you, you kind of you you know that those gaps are going to get filled. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of you just have to imagine it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the lovely thing is the experience as a fan. There's so much material that I forgot that it was Elton's song, and and that's the great thing about films like this is that you get reminded of, of how impressive the songbook is for these artists. And for you, what was the considerations of dealing with a director who is Dexter has a background as an actor, so he has. Oh, yeah. He has considerations of the main lead. He also is a director and he understands ultimately the creative decisions he wants to lead. And then you also have, at the end of the day, you're trying to honor and service your main character of Elton John. So was Elton at all influential in the work that you're doing? Was there feedback? Was there conversation, notes that would ever come back from his camp? Well, he he was uh, he, he was very keen, I think, for whoever took the part to really take it upon themselves to play their version of him um, had a wonderful impartiality. I think once he'd set the pieces in motion, you know, once Taron was on board, once he'd heard Taron sing and they spent time together and Taron, I, I think he connected, uh, you know, over, not just over his story, but musically as well. I think once he'd set all those bits in motion, I think he very gracefully said, like, you guys go and make this movie. I don't want to have, you know, to be too controlling over it because I think he trusted everyone. And I think that he, he knew that, uh, you know, this, this story had to be told by other people, not, not really just him, you know? Uh, so actually he was, he was very hands off. Um, uh, we, we had a few chats, uh, we FaceTimed at one point, um, to discuss the mix, which he was, over, you know very happy with generally um so he, he um he was a obviously a huge part of this but but in a sort of uh godfather sort of way you know he, he sort of oversaw it but let us get on with it which was amazing and to be to be fair you know karen took took this role 
you know, completely wholeheartedly to himself, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think he, he really led everybody, you know, uh, to, you know, down, down a very clear path, you know, with his, he's so fully engaged in their character and, and he's so committed to his version of Elton, you know, that in a way, you know, he's not Elton John, he's Taron Egerton, but he, you know, he, he so believes, you know, he, you so believe him in the role that you just, you kind of go with it. He's, he's such a, he was such a clear through, through line for us, you know. From the costumes, just to the mannerisms, to how he talked. I haven't seen footage. I mean, obviously, I've heard Elton John talk. I've seen him perform. I've seen the clips. But something that, that's always really fun that happens in these films is that there's recreations of these monumental milestones, career kind of moments. And so for you guys, was there a point of reference for some of the, the bigger songs and set pieces of matching? Yes. Yes, there were. At the same time, we weren't trying to recreate you know, we were, it's a fantasy. So we, so much of this is, is just a way of looking at them. You know, we, we, I said, th- th- the one that was probably the most recreative in that sense was probably the rocket man when he, when he comes out on stage, Th- that event, you know, is very, very much one of the, one of, one of the, uh, the apex, if you like, of, of Elton's career, I think certainly that part of his career. And, Coming out on stage, having gone through the events he goes through to an, an audience, you know, 80,000 people singing along with you was was uh, recreating that and making that feel as as monumental as it was, I think, at the time was was one of the few times we thought, let's make it like we, we're kind of there, you know. And and so paying homage to that event was definitely in our minds and, and probably in other places. But, you know, it, it was more about... Um, the fantasy really and using his music using the narrative of the music to tell a story you know using the lyrics to sort of say say to tell us about what's going on inside Elton's head how he was feeling subjectively emotionally rather than just chronologically going through events it was it was using his music to sort of understand who he is as a person and how he responded to this this stratospheric career that he that he's had and I think that's what makes the movie so powerful is it's it's not really events. It's it's about a person's mind yeah. and about their experiences. You know, that's great. Well, your mention of Giles Martin. When I saw that his credit was in, I was seeing the arrangements. I was looking, thinking of the strings. How much exploration can you guys really have when it comes to the post stage of, like you're saying, some songs were longer, some were shorter. Yeah. I just imagining like how can you really truncate something when it's like you've almost it's like you've committed it. I feel like you've committed at that point, but that's not the case. Well, yeah, you, you know, a good example of how that of, of how we we might change that is is that early on there's a um, uh, your song when he's working the piano and he right. he comes comes across this song. Uh, Bernie's just written the lyrics and it's very literal. You know, we cut up and downstairs. Bernie's listening in, and he magically finds these chords and starts singing your song to the li- and the lyrics that Bernie's written, and. Um, to begin with, it's very literal, and so it literally is just a piano and uh, Taron singing. But but finding the moment where the song suddenly elevates the the reality and then becomes fantasy was, uh, you know, it was a it wasn't a straight up choice. There were many places that you could do it. Uh, there's a lovely moment when Bernie and he sort of look at each other, and there's a lovely moment when his uh, grandmother and his mother sort of start observing that he's he's playing this amazing song 
there's a few places where suddenly we could choose to go, well, let's have another instrument join in here. And actually, you know, we we did have strings uh, start quite a bit later in there. We were quite literal for a little bit longer. And uh, quite late in the game, I think Dexter and and, and um, decided that we, we should probably enter the fantasy a bit earlier. Mm. And so, you know, we had strings earlier, so let's use them. So that's what we did. So actually, when you're going, when you're using, you know, when you've got a lot of score or a lot of components with the score, you, you quite often find that, you know, especially in the fantasy, you might want to start, hold on to reality a bit longer or, or, or shorter and and so these 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 bits you can back on or mute or open up as, as you see fit There's a fair bit of that went on with quite a few numbers that's that's a very clear example but we did it um in deliberate road um we did it on a, a few other tracks where we wanted to hang on to a certain feeling longer so we held back with score or we held back with strings or yeah so there's a lot you can do where did you guys end up rec- um, mixing this? And, and was all of it based out in London? Or wh- where did you guys have home camp? Yeah, no, we mixed it all at Goldcrest, um, which is where I am now, actually, um, at Goldcrest on Dean Street in Soho. Um, and uh, yeah, the, uh, the, all the final mixing was done here. Uh, Danny and Matt, our sound supervisor, did some of their mixing at their place. But um, basically, it all came together here, yeah. And, and for you guys, what was the production schedule? Because you got um, you were working towards the premiere, which was at Con, which was you said two weeks ago, right? Well, I think actually it was three weeks ago. Three, okay, three weeks, ago. weeks have got a bit. <laughs> so yeah. even so, that was your first kind of deadline that you're looking to do. Absolutely. So yeah, working backwards, when did you guys start getting in into like heavy mixing? Yeah, I mean, we. I don't know how it worked out this way, but can was a very clear date that everybody had. But somehow, we backed into it like four weeks. We started final mixing four weeks before that date, oh my which, God. which uh, was a little bit scary because, um, you know, I when I watched it, I thought I knew how complex it was going to be. Um, I think it was testament to the decisiveness of our filmmakers and, and Paramount and everybody uh, and Elton. Um, you know, uh, that we got it done in the time we did, you know, very focused four weeks. It was pretty intense. Um, we didn't, I don't think I really got a day off. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, so a lot of hours, but, um, you know, once you're in the groove of those things, it's sometimes just best to stay in the groove and just keep going because, you know, you, you, you get a very quick shorthand with stuff and certainly technically you do. So, uh, you know, maybe not such a bad thing. And and actually sometimes, you know, just, just, just off on a tangent slightly, sometimes when you've got a distilled period of time, it's, it's like sometimes that necessity is a, is a, is a fortuitous hand, you know, that you get dealt because you have to make bold, decisive decisions and you have to kind of stick with them. And actually I, I think we could all do with a bit more of that <laughs> generally speaking in our lives. Um, well, I could speak for myself anyway. Um, so when you get that sort of intense creative period, it was very creative, very productive. And, you know, having a very focused deadline was in some ways a bit of a friend, I think, to us. I I, I look back at it now and think of some of the choices that certainly I made and I'm sure others were were informed by the fact that we had to make them rather than anything else. And and often, you know, it's like when you're doing temp mixes, when you're often the, you make the boldest moves, those the moves that really do shape the sound of the film 
are, the, are sometimes the quickest ones you come up with because they're instinctive and they're they're ones that uh, you know uh, they they feel right and 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 sometimes having that bit of a deadline helps that helps focus that. So after the premiere, was there any grace period in between that and the theatrical premiere of making any additional changes? No, no, that was it. Okay, we uh, we hit can. I guess uh, I guess if if we really were in trouble with something, we could have done it. But the 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 the, the, pre- the premiere was literally a week before the the global oh, theatrical. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we were that was it. You know. Having that much time to mix, like you said, potentially four weeks is not necessarily ideal, but it forces you to kind of commit and continue to plow. It's, it's I, For me, I think we do our best work under pressure. We do our mm. maybe our most interesting work when we can't overthink it. So for you, um, in the position that you're in, what's the balance between listening to director's feedback, um, your own kind of experience of anticipating what's going to work in the theater world, what's going to play back and what's going to satisfy the the director and the producers? Yeah, well, uh, you know, everyone you every filmmaker I work with has a different aesthetic. It sometimes it's slightly different, sometimes it's completely different. And so, the first thing you have to do as a mixer, I think, and as as anyone working in with the director, uh, uh, is find out what that aesthetic is, and get a handle on on that and what that what that is. And then and then I think. Hopefully that aesthetic is one that will play well theatrically. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully that's one that you can actually take and make a great sounding movie with. And uh, certainly that was the case, I think, with Dexter and, and everyone on on board this film. Um, thankfully, so once we got a handle on his on, on how how he saw it, how he heard it, and it took a couple of tracks for us to really get through that. Then really, and I, th- I think I mentioned, you know, Saturday Night was a good formative experience in that department. I think he, because we were so compressed, he, you know, he had to grade the movie. There's visual effects, all sorts of things going on. So he <clears throat> he then entrusted us to sort of follow that template and and really find our way with it. And um, you know, Giles Martin was around a lot, um, and there was a lot of faith put in Giles musically from Elton. So I think he was a, he was a very good. Um, he helped steer us very clearly with in in terms of what Elton wanted. And um, you know. Uh, once you once you've got the course you know you off you go on it you know that's that's really what happened that's cool and one of the other aspects that i didn't realize or think about till after the film which i think is good is that you go from maybe the onset production to a produced song with a vocal how do you what's the difference between how you mix a dialogue vocal versus a vocal for a, a track how do you guys match in terms of the quality because i feel like i can imagine the pre-record could be you know it's in a studio you have a controlled environment it's very pristine and they're not using the same microphones they're not using the same channel path so how do you match those types of things is it more of a volume eq approach is it a verb across like what were some of the tricks that you found would would kind of make that blend better i can't possibly tell you that it would it would spoil the illusion (laughs) um yeah um well you know, there's there's lots you can do. Um, yes, we went into pre-recorded vocals often at the most difficult moment. You know, when you just just when you really want a bit of production to help you get through. No, like for example, at the beginning when he does the bitches back, the first couple of lines are production, and then we go into pre-record, and it was actually a really difficult match to get right. 
um, you know, it's it's a bit like matching ADR. There's a lot of I think this is where the craft is really in in mixing dialogue in particular is is finding understanding where the frequencies are, where the resonant p- frequencies are, understanding what the space is around it, the compression values that you've got on production and matching those with the post and all those things. And it's just listening and, and, and really trying to make sure that you you can transition as seamlessly as possible. Often it's it's little tiny degrees, little movements. Uh, it's it's finding shape. There's there's a there's a scene when he's doing your song when we cut to the studio mm. when when uh, he's he's found it on the piano at home and then we cut to the studio. He's recording a track and all of that. In fact, the whole of your song is 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 post you know post recorded. It's none of it's real. Um, mm-hmm. And actually getting him moving on and off the mic you know, just getting some proximity with volume and EQ and all those things help sell, you know, the believability of it. It's, it's quite amazing how sensitive we are as a species to, to, if something doesn't sound quite right, what we're looking at, we don't really understand why it isn't, but we know it isn't. And uh, we're very, very sensitive to that stuff. And, uh, but when you get it across the threshold, you know, you know, when you have, and it's like, suddenly you're just believing the performance, you know, but it's, 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 it's chipping away until you get it across that line and then you're going right there it is, you know, and everything else has to work around that. Um, it's the craft, it's the craft of, of that's the big craft of mixing, I guess, is that, that, that getting that stuff to work. And, you know, I suppose spending years mixing dialogue helps, helps that because, you know, there's a, a whole set of tools and, 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 uh, techniques, I guess that you pick up to help matching it everything together that really help help inform that stuff you mentioned proximity which is something that i did notice which was really helpful because it didn't feel the microphone is always right in front of him there were distances that the camera would obviously change and hard cuts or transitions and we could hear that movement which to me actually did help kind of make it feel like it was like you were in the room with him i think that that's a really yeah. good takeaway the proximity of the actor and the vocal the track the music track stayed the same but the vocal kind of dipped you know, in the in the troubadour when he does crocodile rock, that's all. That's that's you know, it's all been processed with that in mind. So every time we're away with the crowd, where there's more of a PA vibe going on, and when we're with him, there's more proximity with him. Uh, and and actually, you know, without getting too geeky about this, there's a plugin I use called um, Spiff, which is made by this this I think it's a Danish company called Oik Sound that help pull all the very, very quick transits. When you record someone very close on mic, the, all the consonants just tend to hit harder than they do on a on a big wide boom. So uh, containing those transients and giving it a slightly rounder, wider feel um, was one of the first things I did with quite a few of the vocals in order to get them feeling more synky. And, uh, and then, you know, all the other stuff, EQ and reverb and things like that. But, you know, there's lots of techniques, but that was a particularly useful bit of kit, that one. You just had like a, a few hundred people go to their website and buy that plugin. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that to me just shows there's no one size fits all when it comes to working on these types of films. There's no one approach that is going to be like, ah, oh, I know exactly how I'm going to do this because there are so many variables when it comes to uh, the, the aesthetic. I mean, fortunately, you guys kind of set the precedent saying this is a fantasy, which is like, all right, we don't have to be so literal. We don't have to be so on the nose with everything. We can stretch and expand and be very outer body with with how sound is treated. Were there any unexpected approaches that happen on the mix stage that 
maybe you guys set off one direction and then ultimately is like, this is not working. We need to really rethink this. What's one that comes to mind? Yeah, I think, I think actually rocket man was probably one of those, uh, you know, the main theme, uh, you know, it's a big pivotal moment in the movie. And, uh, I think to start with, we were probably too literal. You know, he, he sings to the bottom of the pool. He sings with a, his child version himself. He's dragged out. He's resuscitated by a sort of a team of um, you know, ambulance, uh, you know, medical people. And then he goes out on stage. And really, there's one version where a lot of that is playing and to sit him more in reality. And actually, you know, the filmmakers are very keen to make sure that that wasn't too real, that that was very much a fantasy. And so music, you know, ended up leading a lot more through that whole section um, and the fantasy went away. You know, we went through this probably with every song. Yellow Brick Road was another one where we we kind of, uh, we, we kind of had some layers of reality that we ended up pulling back a bit more on, but finding our moments to do it. It was, it was a really very different, every single track was a different sort of feel. And, and also emotionally in the film, it sort of, becomes slightly more fantastic as you get through it. Um, so by the end, you know, you, you've, you've bought into it, you, you know, in a way your license, you've got an even wider license at the end to, um, to, to play it however you want. Um, you sort of earn, you kind of earn it, you know, as you go through. So uh, it, it was very much a kind of piece by piece, just deciding w- which piece, which ones you could get away with and which ones you couldn't. Were any of the tracks ones that were lyrically were introduced that made sense because of the story component and not necessarily it was just a need to... Because that's the wonderful thing is you look at someone's song list or, or, or their, their library and it's like, ah, oh, this song will be for this, represent this part of Elton's life. And I felt like when, when those things sync up in the story, whereas lyrically he's talking about something that the character is feeling in the film, it makes complete sense. So was there considerations of introducing songs that were less known because of yeah the story context yeah definitely you know there's a lot of the tracks that play for source uh were placed with that in mind um a good example of that would be take me to the pilot which was used uh after he and paul meet uh, at the at the party after the troubadour and it's where they go and make love together for the first time and it was very much a track that was set to narrate the electrifying event mm-hmm. for elton at that point you know it's a, he lost his virginity i believe then and so this track was very much t- helping us understand that you know narratively but also emotionally and um a lot of the source tracks that we used were used for that very reason you know they uh they they were there to help explain uh, and really propel the narrative in that sense that's exciting that you guys are able to have the, i mean i think the flexibility to I mean, obviously, Ellen John is involved with this project. It's not like you're, it's a, a project without the support of the artist. I, I think it would be impossible, obviously. But like when you have the artist's involvement in this, in this way, like the amount of material that, you know, that you probably had access to to utilize was... Yeah. I mean, the difference is, is you're not obviously going back to, you know, to the masters of any recording. And so you don't have that. So, but I, I think you can look, you can kind of take a, a step aside and say, all right, well, yeah. we do have the, well, yeah, the flexibility. Yeah, what was great was that we had these amazing tracks, you know, incredible catalogue of, of music. Um, that that that, and I think Elton's music does speak very narratively to people. You know, the lyrics and and the and the melodies are, you know, they. I think part of the reason he's he's a global phenomenon is that these tracks really speak to people. You know, and so to use them to to speak to people in terms of a film, you know, it's a it's a it's it makes a lot of sense to go that way. Um, 
And so, yeah, we were incredibly lucky. But it, because we didn't use the original tracks, because everything was reconstructed from scratch, it meant that we could we could use some of the source music um, to work to, to transition us into events. Uh, and we could we could say, well, let's have, an, let's have another verse, you know, without the vocal, and then let's go into vocal here. And so we, we were able to really um, use it in a, in a really creative way way and uh construct you know exactly what was needed for the for the film at any given moment with this with this incredible mine of of stuff you know it was it was brilliant absolutely it was one of the funnest parts of the film i think was that just helping put that together so lastly now that the film you you've <laughs> the film's been delivered it's out in theaters people are seeing it what how, how, how do you describe that two three week period where we are now for you after you wrap just a project a, a, a future film of this size how do you even describe your perspective now on the project like what happens when you do rap and you look back on a project like what 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 is some of the major takeaways from working on a film like this oh that's a good question that really is um, besides sleeping i suppose yeah i mean that's the thing is it depends what you're doing yeah. i mean i i've had a very busy period of time i i went from tim burton's dumbo straight into aladdin mm. And then straight into this, and, and literally finished on Friday, start on a Monday. You know, it was it was been crazy. So, I'd I'd always I'd always put a very big like I'm not doing anything the minute this film ends because I just need to just not press any buttons for a week or two. I just and and so so in this particular case, you know, yeah, the first thing is don't press any buttons for a week or two. Uh, I just came back from Greece. I had a week with my family there. It was great. And so you know that's all brilliant. But uh, you know. I think I think I think more poignantly the question is what, what do you take away from it and you know each movie you work on it's 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 very different you know your experiences are very different and it's about relationships and and all that stuff but ultimately the thing that resonates I for me anyway longest is you're intimately involved with these films at every frame of them you know and I think when you when you've got some time away from it you get a better perspective on it and you understand how good it is you know i i often it takes me a bit of time to look back and go well that film was okay or sure maybe that film wasn't so okay. but maybe that film was really special and this 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 film i still wake up in the morning with tracks in my head i still wake up with you know uh scenes and lines of dialogue and things that there's poignant evocative moments i suppose that that really do uh set the film ahead of you know, most a lot of other films I've worked in, in terms of that, it, it just resonates so well and so long. You know, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's it's a beautiful sort of emotional journey that that I think you know you can't just switch off from. It's it's a it's a brilliant. It's been brilliantly captured and 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 it resonates for a long time afterwards. And and so for me, uh, you know, having a few weeks away and it still being feeling like that about it means for me it's something really special. You know, career wise, no question. That's awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Rocket Man. I've I've always been a fan of your work. I feel like, like I said, there's people who understand musicals who can who have a lot of experience doing that, and and so it's just great to have a chance to talk with you. For anyone who is interested in getting into this type of work, when it comes to, I mean, we don't necessarily always have a chance to pick the types of projects we work on, but if someone does want to kind of head in that direction. What are some what's some of the pointers you'd give them? Because I mean, are you a musician yourself even? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got into filmmaking through music and I, I produced music for quite a while. In fact, I still write. I did a score for a movie a couple of years ago. Um, um, and I guess it's, it's, it's my first love in a way. And it's the point of reference all the time through everything, you know, I'm doing filmmaking wise. It's, it's always there. So, yeah, you know, uh, having a good musical sort of uh, feel is, I think, incredibly useful when it comes to mixing films together. And, and, and actually, you know, we get into m music because it's, it's something that speaks to us. And, um, and, you know, I found over the years that, 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 that the language that we use in music is one that you can use in film as well. And it's, it's one of the wonderful things about film is I think that it, it can speak to a lot of people in a lot of different areas, you know, production, you know, set design, costumes, art. It's, it's an amazing creative arena for so many people to express themselves in. So from a post-sound point of view, music is, a, I, I think, a, a point of reference for a lot of fellow uh, sound um, people and uh, certainly for me and my advice for anyone that wants to get into it is to um, to do as many uh, work with as many people as you can do as many short films temp mixes anything you get your hands on and and have an opinion have a voice have uh, believe in your uh, trust your instincts you know all of this everything that we've spoken about today is actually fundamentally about listening and expressing a point of view and finding a consensus amongst creative people and and moving that consensus forward and so you know i think find, honing those skills is is what you need to do i guess to be successful with it i love it thank you so much for your time mike and uh congratulations again if people haven't seen rocket man it's in theaters check out the soundtrack it's so much fun. I just feel like the work that was done on this film is just going to be continued to be hopefully celebrated to, through the rest of the year and into award season because it's just a, an incredible effort. So thank you again. Oh, thank you. And thank you for such insightful questions. It was, I hope I haven't rambled too much, but it's been really nice to actually think about the answers and and, uh, and have, a, have a feeling for them. So thanks a lot. <laughs>